In our day and age of online communication and oversensitivity to virtually everything, there is one thing we can count on, and that is we are going to face conflict and controversy. Years ago in polite society, you talked behind people's back. And when they approached you about it, you lied. You didn't admit that you had said whatever it is they claim you said. But nowadays, we post it for them and everyone else to read. And as a result, there are going to be conflicts. So there are multiple ways to deal with that. I mean, how do you deal with the inevitability of conflict and controversy in life? If you seek to say anything or accomplish anything, it is going to come your way. Now, one option is that you can simply get off of everything. You can get off of social media. You can quit trying to do anything of any real value. You can quit speaking up about anything. And then, of course, you'll probably get, uh, get conflict over that. People will criticize you for not saying anything. A second option is that we can complain. We can tell everybody else about how awful we've got it and what people are saying about us, but that doesn't seem to help out very much either. Thirdly, you can ignore the conflict and controversy and just go on, especially if you are certain that this is what God wants you to do. You are where God wants you to be, accomplishing what God wants you to accomplish, and therefore you ignore the critics and move on with whatever it is you are doing or saying. And that, of course, is probably the best option, but it is a very difficult one. Of course, the last option is to confront, something most of us do not like. In fact, as I told somebody just this past week, if you like conflict and controversy, then you've got other issues going on in your life. In our case, often the confrontation merely escalates the problem. It brings up more controversy and more conflict, and the spiral just keeps getting worse. The reason I bring all that up is because what might surprise you in the Gospel of Mark is not that Jesus has conflict and controversy. You've read the Gospels enough to know that he is often at odds with the religious leaders of his day, but what might surprise you is that he often provokes the controversy. That is, he says or does things in the presence of the religious leaders that he knows they are not going to like for the purpose of beginning a dialogue which ultimately results in more knowledge about who he is. Now, I'm not suggesting that in this case we follow the example of Jesus. I'm simply acknowledging that he was often the one who provoked his opponents for the purpose of teaching his disciples and others. He wasn't doing it for a love of controversy. He was doing it to demonstrate who he is. And so as we turn the page to Mark chapter 2, we encounter five stories of conflict or controversy. We're only going to look at two of them this morning. This, this section of Mark goes from chapter 2 verse 1 all the way down to chapter 3 and verse 6 where there's these five stories of controversy. This is all in, in Galilee, all at the beginning of his ministry, and the scenario will repeat itself later in his ministry in Jerusalem. Now, it is likely that these stories did not occur in chronological order. 
Now, we tend to read the Gospels as if they are all written in chronological order. That's just natural for us. And what I'm saying is that might not be the case with these five stories. They might be grouped here, even if they didn't happen sequentially. They might be grouped here because of the common element of controversy. So our goal today is not to learn how to confront people ourselves. It is not to learn how to deal with controversy as we see how Jesus deals with it. Our goal is to see Jesus, to see who He is in the midst of these conflicts. And so from Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 17, we are talking today about squabbles with scribes. Now, your squabbles are not going to be with scribes. They're going to be with other people. But this is the conflict that Jesus is having. Mark chapter 2 and verse 1. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And as they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd... They removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in His Spirit that they were questioning within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And He rose and immediately picked up His bed. And went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Verse 13, He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to Him, and He was teaching them. And as He passed by, He saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And He said to him, Follow me. And He rose and followed Him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with sinners and tax collectors? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners." The first of our five stories, again, we're just looking at two today, but the first of our five stories is a rather well-known story because of the unique manner in which this man was brought to Jesus for healing. But ultimately, this turns out to be a controversy over deity. Jesus is once again in Capernaum. You remember last week, he, uh, he had left Capernaum. He had told the disciples they wanted, he wanted to go to other cities and towns to preach the gospel there also, and he was sort of pushed out into the desolate places because of the crowds. And so now he's come back to Capernaum after some time has elapsed, and he is back at the house, the, the de facto home that he lived in with uh, Peter and Andrew that was in actuality their home, but Jesus seems to have been staying there. 
And sure enough, it doesn't take long for word to get out that he is back. And the house is packed with people so that no more could enter. The fire marshal would not be pleased with this situation, but I suppose in that day there were no fire marshals and no such regulations. But before we get into the story itself, I do want to highlight something that is very important. We find it in verse 2. In verse 2, he says, or it says, and he was preaching the word to them. I highlight that not because I'm a preacher and therefore that's one of my favorite lines. I highlight it because that is the priority. And it is easy to miss that in the midst of the the more dramatic elements of a healing miracle that Jesus came to preach the Word. In fact, we see the same thing in the second story down in verse 13. It says that He was teaching them. So don't lose sight of the teaching and preaching ministry of Jesus aimed at announcing, as we saw, the coming of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is at hand. And then the preaching of the gospel of God, which we saw was defined with those two words, repent and believe. Repent of your sins, meaning admit them and turn away from them, and believe, which means by faith trust in who Christ is and what he has done. That is the priority. That is why he came. That was his mission then. It remains his mission now to save people from their sins. Well, the first thing I want you to see in this controversy over deity is the faith of the five. Now, the five I'm talking about are the four men who brought their lame friend to Jesus, and I'm adding him in the mix. I'm adding him because I assume that he had as much faith as they did because I assume that they are not bringing him to Jesus against his will. So they are bringing him because they have heard or seen, perhaps even both, that Jesus is able to heal and they believe that he has the power to heal their friend. But there is a problem, an obstacle, and that obstacle is the crowd is so large that they are unable to get into the house to see Jesus. Now, you may have noticed already in Mark's gospel that he talks about the crowds a lot. In fact, by the time we get to chapter 10, there will be nearly 40 mentions of the crowd, but it is not usually in a good light. In fact, Mark nowhere talks about the crowds turning to Jesus in mass in repentance and belief as we've just talked about. There is no mention of them doing that. In fact, the one characteristic that is evident above all others when it comes to the crowds in Mark's gospel is that they stand in the way of people coming to Jesus. And that is what we see here. They are an obstacle. These four men were having difficulty getting to Jesus because the crowds were too large. Which reminds us that just because one is a part of the crowd does not mean that they are a disciple of Jesus. There is a distinction between the crowds and those who are following Christ. And by the way, that same truth holds true today. Just because one is a member of a church does not mean that they are a follower of Christ. There is a distinction then and now between the casual onlookers who want to observe what Jesus is doing and those who are committed followers of His. But the story is memorable precisely because these friends do not let this obstacle get in their way. They find a way around it. And houses in those days had an outdoor staircase. And that outdoor staircase would have led to a flat roof. It's difficult for us to picture because that's not the way our homes are constructed. 
So these men go up that staircase to the roof, and that roof was extra living space, much like our decks or patios are today. Or in, in, in major cities, apartment complexes or condos often have rooftop access where the residents can, can have some outdoor activities on the, on the top of those buildings. So this was an area where they would have been able to relax, they would have dried clothes there, perhaps they would have eaten. If you go to Acts chapter 10, you find that Peter is using a rooftop as a solitary place to pray. And so these men take their friend up on the roof where it is not constructed of shingles nailed to plywood, it is constructed of mud and sticks or dirt, and so they would have been much easier to to remove some of that. In fact, the phrase is literally, they unroofed the roof. They make a hole in it, and in the process, no doubt, spread debris and mud on the people down below who are listening to Jesus. Now, we've had all kinds of interruptions in our services over the years, Uh, most notably birds flying around, which gratefully, we've not had that in a very long time. But we've never had the roof open up and someone drop down. But this does not distract Jesus. It does not deter him from his mission. Instead, he turns to them and says something about their faith. Well, how does he see their faith? He sees their faith because their faith is in action. They are acting out their faith. James reminds us that faith without works is dead. And that such faith is not real saving faith. That does not mean that we are saved by works. It means that genuine salvation works. And that distinction is vitally important. Our works do not save us, but when we come to faith in Christ, that kind of faith works. And James goes on to remind us, I will show you my faith by my works. And that's what these men are doing. They are showing their faith to Jesus by what they are doing with their friend. Now, this, of course, brings up a question, a question about the relationship between faith and healing. If Jesus does not heal me, is it because I have a lack of faith? And that is the answer that many in the health and wealth gospel community would give you. Jesus clearly does respond to their faith here. But again, there are other instances where faith seems to play little, if any, part in the narrative of the healing. And when we conclude that those who are not healed do not have enough faith, we are placing undue guilt and burden upon them, blaming themselves for their sickness, whether it's because of their lack of faith or because of sin, as we'll talk about in just a few moments Now, we'll talk more about this connection in the future because there are multiple instances in the healing narratives to do that, but to briefly give you an answer this morning, I want to give you an answer from an example. And that example is the story of Peter and John. Both of these men were active followers of Christ, and both wind up in prison because they are followers of Christ. And you know the story of Peter. He is miraculously released from jail. There's a group of people praying that he might be released. God releases him during the middle of the night, and Peter shows up at the house, and they don't even believe it's him. They think it's a ghost because they really didn't expect an answer to their prayer. So Peter is miraculously released. John, on the other hand, is beheaded. John loses his life. 
And so if we look at these two men, are we to conclude that Peter was a man of great faith, so God released him, and John lacked faith, so God allowed him to die? I certainly hope that will not be your conclusion. And so I say all that to say we have to be very careful that we not make these leaps either in our own lives or the lives of our loved ones and conclude if you just had enough faith, you would be healed. God, for some reason, does not always choose to heal. And much of that needs to remain a mystery to us. But here is what we need to be reminded of, and that is that God is a good and loving God, whether you or I or he are healed or not. And that is easy to say from the pulpit. It is much harder to live through when you are the one experiencing it. So seeing the faith of the five, then Jesus declares the sins are forgiven. And this is where the story takes a strange and unexpected twist. The pronouncement of Jesus seems rather inappropriate and even irrelevant. I mean, there is no indication that this man came to have his sins forgiven. There is no indication that this was on his mind at all. These four men brought their friend for physical healing, and yet Jesus twists the story. Now, we know that this was a debilitating illness. We don't know exactly what it was. It's mere speculation to go any further than that, but we know that it was such that the man could not walk and probably has been in this situation for a prolonged period of time, which is why these men are so urgent in getting him to Jesus. And so Jesus declares his sins forgiven. But why does he do that? Well, one answer might be that Jesus knows his greater need. And we've talked about this before, and it is an accurate truth, that Jesus knows that while this man uh, wants to be healed physically, what he really needs is the greater need of being healed spiritually. And so knowing this, Jesus heals him spiritually. He forgives him of his sins. Another answer, and this is the one most scholars believe, that there is in this case a connection between his sickness and his sin. Now, I need you to hear me clearly on this because, again, we can get very confused by this kind of statement. In, that, in the first century, it was common knowledge, this is what the most believed, that if you were sick, it was because of some sin. God was punishing you. So there is the possibility that the connection was just in the man's mind. That is, this is what he believed. And we know this because of that story about the man born blind. They came to Jesus, and this is the question they asked Jesus. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And do you hear in the question how there was no other option in their minds? Someone had sinned in their thoughts that caused this man to be born blind. It was just a matter of who. So it's possible that the connection was merely in this man's mind. This is what everybody believed. Or it is possible that Jesus knew his particular sin and that there was, in fact, some connection. Now, again, we have to be very careful. This is the only instance where there seems to be that connection. And so this is not a general statement, this is not a, a normative kind of thing, but it might have been true in this instance. And once again, if we make that leap in people's lives, we are placing undue guilt and burden upon them. Again, whether it's our own life or whether it is the life of our loved ones. We cannot know that, and therefore we need to leave such judgments to the only one who does, and that is God. At any rate, the man receives the greatest gift, meeting his greatest need. Sounds very much like a heartwarming story, 
that is sure to wind up on the Hallmark Channel, especially when we read the rest of the story and find out that he is not just spiritually healed, but he is physically healed as well. But it doesn't wind up on the Hallmark Channel. Instead, it winds up in controversy. And that is where our title suggested we are going. And now we are there, the squabble with the scribes. I told you a few weeks ago that scribes were not just copyists. They were not just men who took a document and made another document from it. These were experts in the law. They were interpreters of the law. They, in fact, made laws. That is, they took biblical and scriptural laws and they interpreted them by explaining them further. And as a result, there were all these other laws which became the tradition and people were expected to follow that along with the scriptural commands as well. And Mark mentions the scribes often, but on only one occasion is it in a positive manner. In every other occasion, they are in opposition to Jesus. And so here they immediately accuse Jesus of blasphemy, though not to his face. Blasphemy is irreverent or profane speech about God, or in this case, assuming the place of God. And this was a serious charge, punishable according to the Old Testament law by being stoned to death, though the charge had to be proven beyond a doubt. And so this is actually the same charge we're going to find in chapter 14, which leads to Jesus' crucifixion. But let's at least give these scribes some credit because their statement is actually true, not the statement about Jesus being a, a blasphemy, but their next statement where they say, Who can forgive sins but God alone? That is indeed an accurate statement. In fact, in the Hebrew mind, not even the coming Messiah had the power or authority to forgive sins. That was reserved for God the Father alone. And so they actually hit on something extremely important here, though, of course, they do not know it. The truth is that only God can forgive sins. They just don't make the connection that Jesus is indeed God and that He does have the authority to forgive sins, and therefore, He is not blaspheming at all. And just as Jesus knew the particular sins of the lame man, He now knows the thoughts of the scribes, and He addresses them with a question. They are questioning in their hearts. Jesus questions them audibly. He says, which is easier? To forgive sins or to tell this man to rise and take up his bed and walk. And the presumed answer is that proclaiming forgiveness of sins is easier because it cannot be verified. That is, anybody can say uh, you're forgiven of your sins, but that's hard to prove. But telling a, a lame man to get up and walk, that can be verified immediately. And that leads to our last portion of this controversy over deity, and that is the lame man leaves. He leaves not on a mattress through the roof, but he leaves on his legs, presumably through the front door. Jesus heals him and commands him to take up his bed and go home, which indeed he does. And the important point to notice is that this second healing, that is physical healing, is to demonstrate the first. Look at verse 10 again. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic. In other words, he's going to heal him physically as proof that he had the authority to heal him spiritually. Once again, spiritual healing was more significant than the physical healing. Jesus does the second to prove the first. 
This is also the first time in Mark's gospel that we come across the title Son of Man. This is Jesus' favorite designation for himself. In fact, no one else ever calls him this. This is always from his lips. And it's found about 14 times in Mark's gospel and nearly 80 times in all of the gospels combined. So, So what does it mean? Why would Jesus use this title and why is it his favorite? You remember last week we talked about the messianic secret. That is early on in the ministry of Jesus here in Galilee, he often told people to be quiet about who he was. And we said that was because there were all kinds of misconceptions about the Messiah. He was to be a military or political leader, and if Rome got wind of Jesus claiming to be uh, the Messiah, there might be trouble for him very early in his ministry, and so he sort of squashes that talk right off the bat, which may be the reason why he uses the title Son of Man, because it's much more uh, ambiguous, and it forces people to wrestle with who he is and, and what this title represents. And so he uses this rather than some of the other titles that we see uh, elsewhere. Because it is a title that is free of political or military connotations and all of the unwelcome associations, again, at the early stages of the ministry here in Galilee. So this man is healed twice, physically and spiritually, or what we might call complete healing. He receives from Jesus far more than he ever expected. And we are shown once again a sign, a sign that the kingdom of God really is at hand. And because the kingdom of God is at hand, a response is demanded. And again, that response is repent and believe. Indeed, never have we seen anything like this is what the crowd says. And we can say the same thing. A man who comes and proclaims forgiveness of sins never Have we seen anything like this? Well, we move to our second controversy, not just controversy over deity, but the second of these five episodes is controversy over dinner. Now, this one you might more readily resonate with because we've all had conflicts over dinner. Maybe it was over what the kids did or did not do that day. Maybe it was over something that somebody said. Maybe it was over who burned what for supper. But that is not, of course, what this is about. This, too, is going to be a controversy over who Jesus is and what he is doing. But the controversy doesn't begin at dinner at all. It begins in a familiar place for us, down by the shore of the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus goes there once again, and he calls his fifth disciple. You know, we've already got the two pairs of brothers, all of whom were fishermen, This time he goes down by the sea and he finds a man by the name of Levi, who is, most people believe, the equivalent of Matthew. That is another name for Matthew because when we get to the list of all 12 disciples later in Mark, Levi is not mentioned, but Matthew is. So Levi and Matthew are equivalent. And Levi is not a fisherman, he is a tax collector. And he is sitting at his tax collector's booth, and Jesus comes across him, and Jesus calls him, even as he did the other four, with the same terminology. He says, follow me. And like the four previous men, he immediately and completely obeyed, leaving everything behind to follow Jesus. And again, this is the essence of discipleship. Though we try to make it much more complicated than it really needs to be, the heart of discipleship is very simple. Jesus calls us to follow him, and we leave everything else to do just that. So Levi is excited, 
And we must rely on Matthew for this detail. He is so excited that he wants to invite his friends to meet Jesus, and so he hosts a dinner in Jesus' honor, though in reality we could say Jesus is the one hosting that dinner. And here is another important point about discipleship. When we meet Jesus, we want our friends to meet him as well. It is natural and normal that when we find joy over having our sins forgiven and following Christ, that we then want to invite others. And that's exactly what Levi does. And so who is he going to invite? He is going to invite other tax collectors and what the text calls sinners. Sinners is in all likelihood here a technical term that referred to people who showed no interest in the scribal tradition. In other words, they weren't even trying to follow the law. It's not that they were trying and not succeeding. That's what all of us do. We're all sinners. It doesn't mean that per se. It means that they were viewed as sinners by the religious leaders because they weren't even trying. They cared nothing about the law. And so that's who Jesus invites to have dinner with. And from our perspective, there doesn't seem to be much here. I mean, Jesus calls Matthew or Levi And then he has dinner with him and some friends. Where is the controversy in any of that? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let me introduce you to what they thought about tax collectors in the first century. These were Jews, but they were Jews in ethnicity only. That is, they were clearly not practicing Jews because if they were, they would not be working for the Romans and they would not be in such close contact with with Gentiles. And so they were outcasts. They were traitors. When you signed on to become a tax collector, you were disqualified from being a judge. You were disqualified from being a witness in court. You were excommunicated from the synagogue, and you were a disgrace both to the community and to your own family. And the system was set up very much like a contract system would be today. That is, the Romans would say to a tax collector, this is your region, and from this region, based on the population and the, uh, the amount of land here, this is the tax amount we want. And so that tax collector was responsible to remit to Rome the amount of money that they requested, which meant that anything above that, he was free to keep. And so the system was was rife for cheating, for dishonesty, for collecting more than he really needed in order to put it in his own pockets. And we know some of this from the story of Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19. Zacchaeus, we are told there, was a chief tax collector. That is, he was over other tax collectors. And he was very rich. Why was he very rich? Because he had stolen from the people. So merely to say that these tax collectors are equivalent to the IRS agents of our own day is not a good comparison. It is hard for us to imagine just how despised these men were in their time. We get a glimpse of it because they are so often connected with sinners. So for Jesus to not only call one of these men to be his disciples, but to then have the the gall to eat with a group of them is indeed a scandal. In fact, some scholars call this section the scandal of grace, that Jesus would have the nerve to associate with people like this. As you probably know, Jews did not eat with non-Jews because it would make them ceremonially unclean. It wasn't just a meal. 
It was table fellowship of the most intimate kind. You see, this is hard for us to imagine as well because so many of our meals are just that. They're a meal. We go through a drive through and pick it up and we eat it in the car or we hurriedly eat it at the house, maybe in, in different rooms. But that was not so back then. It was a social occasion. It was a, a time of intimacy. You've probably been to a restaurant that had these communal tables now. I hate those things. When we go to a restaurant and they say, well, you're going to have to wait or there's some seats at the communal table, I'll say, I'll wait. And most of you know I'm not good at waiting. So for me to say, I'll wait, rather than sit at a communal table tells you how much I dislike those communal tables. I do not want to eat with strangers. I don't want to have to sit there and make conversation with people that I've never met before. And, and the Jews would have joined me in that. This was an, this was an important time. So for Jesus to not just eat with these folks, but to have an intimate relationship with them as they reclined at table, which was the posture in which they did it, especially during formal or feast occasions, was indeed a scandal to the scribes of the Pharisees. That's a different wording there. In the first story, it was just the scribes. Now it says the scribes of the Pharisees, which tells us that some of the scribes were Pharisees, but not all scribes were Pharisees. These were, these were two different groups but there was certainly overlap. And I realize that we have a negative view of Pharisees. When we think of Pharisees, if you know your New Testament, you think of hypocrisy and legalism and opposition to Jesus. But you need to understand that in the first century, that's not what they thought of when they thought of Pharisees. These Pharisees were esteemed men in their day. They knew the law and they kept the law and they were looked up to as very religious and very faithful men. And so they are upset that Jesus is having dinner with the likes of whom he is having dinner with. And it is clear that this is not just an exception to his ministry, a calling of, of one man. This is now the very characteristic of his ministry, and the scribes cannot tolerate that. And though we might not put it in the same words, we still have these kinds of discussions about this very thing. Are we to separate ourselves from the world lest we be contaminated? Or do we jump into the world with a view toward winning the world for Christ? The Bible says bad company corrupts good morals, so you have to stay away. But certainly we understand that the Bible also says that in order to win people, they have to hear the gospel, and in order to hear the gospel, they, they need to hear it from one of us. So obviously there is a need for balance here and wisdom as we think through this subject. But Jesus finishes this conflict by stating a proverb. He says it is sick people that need a doctor. Now again, I know you might want to argue with that and say, yeah, but you're supposed to go to your annual physical. You're not sick, but you've got to go to the doctor. But that's not what we're talking about. Again, I know there's an exception. A, par a parable is a general statement. Generally speaking, it is sick people who need a doctor. And for the doctor to do any good, he's got to be around sick people. I mean, that's why a doctor has an office where the sick people come, and that is why the doctor goes to the hospital to help with sick people. And so Jesus says that's a reflection of his ministry. I have come for those who are sick, sick because of their sin. And as a result, I am going to spend time in my ministry around sick people because I've not come to call the righteous. Now, that does not mean that there are some who are so righteous that they do not need Jesus. We might insert there the self-righteous. That's what he's talking about, and that he's talking about the scribes and the Pharisees. 
people who think they do not need Jesus because they think they are righteous in and of themselves. And so he ends by saying, yes, I'm going to spend time with sinners and even tax collectors because they're the ones that need me and they're the ones for whom I've come, not for those who don't recognize their need. Well, in closing, I want to ask us two questions. First of all, have you received forgiveness of sins? And in asking that question, you might need to even back up to a more fundamental question that you've been asking. Is there anyone who has the authority to forgive my sins? Is there a way for my sins to be forgiven? You don't know what I've done. You don't know how much I've done. Is it even possible for my sins to be forgiven? And though I do not know your particular sins like Jesus does, I can unequivocally say that there is a way for your sins to be forgiven because God in Christ has the authority to do that, and he has come for that very reason. You too can hear Jesus say, son or daughter, your sins are forgiven you. How? By repenting of those sins. Again, that means that we acknowledge them, we confess them, and we identify with Jesus that they are, in fact, sins, and then we turn away from them and believe in Christ. That is, we turn away from sin and we turn toward Christ. And by faith, we trust in who He is and what He's done on our behalf. That means paying the penalty for our sins. And even as we sung about a few moments ago, dying and rising again, that we might be justified or made righteous in the sight of God. Can my sins be forgiven? Absolutely. Have my sins be forgiven? Well, that's another question that you have to answer. But the second question is this. Are you a friend of sinners? I mean, that's what we see Jesus doing here, and that's the charge laid against Him. And if we are followers of His, then shouldn't that charge be laid against us as well? You know, we talk about evangelism a lot. We talk about the need for us to go out into the community or in our missionary's case to go around the world and sharing the message of the gospel. But perhaps we need to ask, once again, an even more fundamental question, and that is, do we even know any sinners? Do we spend time with those who do not know Christ? Again, I'm using that word sinner not to refer to everybody because, again, we all know we're sinners. But do I make time in my life? Am I intentional about being around those who do not know Jesus? Or do I spend all of my time with my church friends so that I'm not even around people who are sinners and need a Savior? And that's the reason I'm not evangelizing. If Jesus was a friend to sinners, then we need to be friends of sinners as well which means we need to be intentional. And the fact of the matter is you probably are around people who Jesus you're just not thinking about. Those parents that are sitting on the stands at the ball game next to you, they may need Jesus. And you just need to find a way to begin the conversation. But we need to be intentional about this. We need to carve out time in our lives so that we don't fill every moment that we have with other believers And instead, we have some time to be with sinners who need Christ. Or to put it another way, we simply need to follow Jesus. And that's what he did. He intentionally spent time with those who needed him. And we need to do the same so that they can hear from us that their sins can be forgiven too. Let's pray.